0: Today we're starting a new series and we're going to be looking at the book of Habakkuk. We're doing it in six parts, spread across three months, um, because there's an awful lot for us to get our heads around. Um, so uh, it's going to be spaced out a bit rather than week by week, but I'm excited about this. Now I'm not sure how familiar you are with the book of Habakkuk, whether it's kind of up there on your top, top book of the Bible, you know, on the chart that you have on the fridge, um, but you might... You might recognise phrases like this. The righteous shall live by faith. It's from Habakkuk. Or you might know, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's from Habakkuk. You might know, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. That's from Habakkuk. You might know, in wrath, remember mercy. That's Habakkuk. And you all know the end, so I'm not going to quote that bit. About vines not producing grapes and sheep not producing flocks and all that kind of stuff. And yet I'll rejoice in the Lord. So I think you probably know a bit more of Habakkuk than you know. But we haven't just chosen it because it's a nice series of proof texts that give us some nice sermons. Um, Actually, we feel this book has a really important message for us as a church at this time. And uh, the twin themes of suffering and sovereignty come out loud and clear through every single chapter of Habakkuk. So uh, they're the kind of things we're going to be looking at as we walk our way through it. So I just wanted to give a little bit of an introduction before we get into the first text um, and, uh, and answer a few questions, really. The first is, who was Habakkuk? Well, all we know is he was called Habakkuk the prophet. That's it. That's what we know. So, um, and he says it twice, so it must be true. Uh, well, it's in the Bible, so it must be true anyway. Uh, but he does say it twice. At the start of chapter 1 and the start of chapter two, 3, he just says Habakkuk the prophet. Um, and he's one of these so-called minor prophets. And now that doesn't mean any less important. Now, I know they were, uh, it just means that it's kind of shorter. I know there are some of you out there who never really felt cool enough to get into maths at school. Um, And so this is your chance because we're going to do a bit of maths now. So uh, up on the the chart will come a, a picture. There we go. A circle split into two sectors. We call the blue sector the major sector and the red sector the minor sector. They're both sectors. In the category of things that are sector, both of those things fit in there. And one's a minor sector, one's a major sector. And it's exactly like that with Habakkuk. He's a prophet, and he's a minor prophet because he's a tiny bit smaller than, say, Isaiah, who just went on and on and on and on <laughs> a bit. Okay? That's all it means. So he's a minor prophet, and he's a prophet. Um, What about when it actually happened? I think that's my next heading. Uh, Oh, no, where did he live? Okay, so um, he lived in Judah. Now, Judah was the southern bit, and the map should come up now, the southern bit of the kingdom of Israel when it was split into two after the reign of Solomon. The northern bit was called Israel in green there, and the southern bit was called Judah in the sort of browny, pinky sort of color there on the map. And he lived in the south and spoke really into that situation. And in terms of when it actually happened, when Habakkuk was around, I think, and this is, you know, commentators are divided, so you can look up the other views, but I think I'm right. Um, (laughs) From from clues we get later in the book, um, I think that the most... Now, Jehoiakim reigned as king in Judah from about 609 B.C., to 598 BC, so 11 11 or so years. And the reason I say that is because it's clear when we read Habakkuk that things are not well in the nation. At the time of Jehoiakim, the northern kingdom, Israel, had disappeared. It had gone off into captivity. The Assyrians had captured them and off they'd gone, mainly because of the sin that they committed. And after that, Judah had undergone a bit of a revival under the reign of the awesome king, Josiah. And during Josiah's lengthy reign, the book of the law had been found. He reinstituted temple worship and the Passover. He purged the nation of of idols and there was uh, was a returning to the the Lord. So there was a, a real return and flourishing under the reign of Josiah. He was then succeeded by his son, who was called Jehoahaz, who reigned for three months. Now, whenever that happens, you know that probably something's going pear-shaped, and it did. And so, after three months, Jehoiakim, who was also Josiah's son, and therefore Jehoahaz's brother, took over. And this is, the, the person who wrote Two Kings summarized Jehoiakim's reign like this. Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned for 11 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Zebedah, the daughter of Padiah of Rumah. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his fathers had done. In his days, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up, and Jehoiakim became his servant for three years. Then he turned and rebelled against him. The Lord sent against him bands of Chaldeans, bands of Arameans, bands of Moabites and bands of Ammonites. So he sent them against Judah to destroy it, according to the word of the Lord, which he had spoken through his servants, the prophets. We're in the final stages of the kingdom of Judah here. And it's not looking good at all. And I think it's into that setting that Habakkuk is prophesying. There's been this golden reign of Josiah, and now it's going downhill. with The rise of lawlessness, the rise of godlessness, violence, iniquity, sin, wickedness, etc. And the impact that has was that the people were suffering. The nation was under pressure, as we've just read there externally. So that's the kind of historic setting. What's it really about? Well, it's about... Suffering and sovereignty. If I were to try and sum up a book of the Bible in two words. And each of the prophets have their own kind of tone and content and emphasis. If you read through them, they're really varied. But Habakkuk is pretty different from the rest of them. Most of the prophetic writings are the prophet speaking to the nation or speaking to the nations. With a message from the Lord. Sort yourself out, follow me or trouble will happen. That's one of the messages they bring and there are others other more positive ones as well but habakkuk is really a dialogue between the prophet and god it's a conversation we kind of get inside his prayer room and hear what he's been communicating with god about and so chapters 1 and 2 is kind of a conversation habakkuk kicks off why is this happening god responds So Habakkuk answers him back and says, really? And God says, yes, and this will happen. And then I think there's a bit of a pause. I think Habakkuk needs a holiday after that interaction. And then he comes back in chapter 3, reintroduces himself as the prophet, and gives us this awesome psalm, which we'll get to, but you'll have to wait. Lloyd-Jones describes the book of Habakkuk As the personal perplexity of one man. I really like that. Habakkuk is a man asking big questions of a big God. And his big questions are things like, if God is all powerful and so good, then why do the innocent suffer? And why do the wicked flourish? And he asks questions like, why does God just sit there and do absolutely nothing? When there's evil and wrongdoing all around. Why doesn't he intervene? He asks big questions. But he gets even bigger answers. And that's where we're heading. Over the course of this series. So today we're going to start our journey through that. I think it's going to be important for us as a church. As we've just heard from Rob there in the notices. About just situations which are happening. These situations cause suffering. Cause angst. Cause sadness. And we need to be prepared for this as individuals and as a church. And we need to be prepared so that when those tough times do come, and they will, we respond in the right way. And the best way to prepare is that we get to know our God better. And Habakkuk can help us with that. So I'm going to read the opening couple of verses, and then we're going to pray. So if you've got your Bibles... Turn to Habakkuk. Hopefully that was long enough for you to find the rather obscure location of it. Um, But Habakkuk chapter 1. The oracle which Habakkuk the prophet saw. How long, O Lord, will I call for help? And you will not hear. I cry out to you, violence! Yet you do not save. Why do you make me see iniquity and cause me to look upon wickedness? Yes, destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists, contention arises. Therefore, the law is ignored. Justice is never upheld. For the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, justice comes out perverted. Oh God, oh God, we stand in awe of you. In awe of you. Thank you for what you have spoken to us about during our worship time. That as we encountered you, the most almighty God of gods and King of kings, you spoke your love to us. You tenderly wooed us and drew us to yourself. And now as we look at this incredible short book of the Bible that you have blessed us with, we pray would you open it up. May we encounter you afresh, even as we consider some of the big problems that there are in our world. As we consider those, may our eyes be drawn again to you. Speak to us, we pray fill us each with the Holy Spirit as we sit under your Word and change us, God, change us as we encounter you. Amen. Apologies if I should have warned you about shouting. Um, I wasn't actually planning on that. So so we're going to look at this in two bits. We're going to look firstly at what Habakkuk saw and then we're going to look at what Habakkuk said. Um, and so basically he looked around and he saw a mess that was it and verse 3 is powerful stuff why do you make me see iniquity and cause me to look on wickedness and then these four things destruction and violence strife and contention and I think they're descriptors of every society in every age could be described as that, where there's destruction and violence, strife and contention. Ever since mankind rebelled in the Garden of Eden, there's been those things. And so it's probably worth looking at them briefly. So destruction and violence, well, basically mankind destroys whatever it touches with its hands. The environment, destroyed. Relationships, destroyed. Families, societies, wherever we look, there's destruction going on. Through selfish decision-making, through lust, through greed, through self-centeredness, destruction all around. And violence just meted out all over the place. The strong over the weak, person on person, nation on nation, to secure land or power or influence. The power of the sword, or the gun, or the targeted missile. You only have to look at news headlines, and there's some pictures up there from the last 12 months. So up there you've got um, Manchester Arena, the Ariana Grande concert that was was bombed. You've got the Westminster Bridge attack. And then down at the bottom we've got just a very recent picture, the chemical attacks in Syria and that little child being rinsed off in the hope that they'll be okay. This stuff is going on. All you have to do is switch on your news and you will hear of violence, man upon man, person upon person. And it's why the prophets put such a high blessing, if you like. God puts such a high blessing on the peacemakers because they run counter to this kind of stuff. It's why prophecies of the kingdom of God include things like beating swords into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks because it's a restoration of the tools of violence for good purpose. So we've got destruction and we've got violence and that happens in our society and all around the world. But we've also got strife and contention. It's a feature of life. We see it within families. We see it in communities. We see conflict and discord. We see people at loggerheads with other people. Over these last couple of years, there's been, I think, increasingly in our media, a focus on difference. And what it is that makes them different from me. Because that then somehow justifies my poor attitude towards them. This kind of fermenting of, of discord. Categorizing people, whether they be Muslim or youth or Brexiteers or Remainers or immigrants or the political elite or bankers or the just about managing or you add your own category. So much emphasis on difference, on division, on otherness. And all it breeds is strife and contention. One group set against another. And when you've got these four things, destruction and violence, strife and contention together, it leads to a fractured society, leads to brokenness. It leads to a place where suffering grows and abounds, multiplies. And ultimately, the weakest and the poorest suffer the most. So Habakkuk notices this destruction and violence, strife and contention, but he also sees what's happening to the law. So in verse 4, he describes this is God's good and perfect law, and this is what happens to it it's sidelined. And in quite evocative language, he says, therefore, the law is ignored. That's not just forgetting it, it's deliberately setting it aside. And therefore justice isn't upheld. How can it be? If you've set aside the law, that's your standard of justice, then that cannot be upheld. And what happens is that the wicked surround the righteous. Gives a sense of the righteous being outnumbered. A multiplication of wickedness. Evil which grows and mushrooms until it's out of control and overwhelms everything else in society. And justice comes out perverted. What justice there is, however far short of the law it actually falls, whatever justice there is, is twisted and corrupted. And again, the prophets are strong on this. Isaiah, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. We live in those times, don't we? Yeah, that's all right. Not a problem. Oh, I wouldn't do that. When actually the reverse should be true. And this is what Habakkuk saw. When he looked around from his vantage point of the prophet, this is what he saw. The abandonment of God's ways the reversal of those huge reforms under Josiah where the law was reinstituted and then the suffering that came out of that. And so what he does is he approaches God. So the second point is what Habakkuk said. I just want to read verse two to you again. I won't shout. How long, O Lord... Will I call for help and you will not hear? I cry out to you violence, yet you do not save. Let me read a couple of psalm openings to you. Psalm 10 Why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart all the day? How long will my enemy exult over me? Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I have no rest. I mean, it's not dissimilar, is it, to what Habakkuk's saying? These psalmists from a couple of centuries before. There are 150 psalms, hugely varied in content and in style. Over 60 of them, 40%, are what we call laments. 40% of their worship songs are lamenting. Worship leaders? A crucial aspect of lamenting is the kind of bearing-it-all expression of pain which they articulate. And what's really notable, I think, is that in the middle of suffering and pain and confusion, the psalmists pen those psalms. They take it to God. They don't wring their hands and go, oh, my word, turn the news off. They take it to God and honestly express how they feel. The pain and the injustice that they see isn't just observed, it's felt and then expressed to God. And sometimes these laments are individual laments. So you read them and it's all in the first person. I see that. Why, Lord, do you do that to me? Expressing the pain which they personally feel. Other times, they're corporate laments, where it's written for the group to come together and express their corporate lament to God. Express their pain as a people. It's kind of what we just did there, praying for Caroline and praying for Trev and Wendy. For them, there's the individual pain of the situation that they are in. And for us, there's the pain of part of the body is hurting. God, come and intervene. And Habakkuk here is motivated in his lamenting by what he sees happening on the national scale. That's the lens he's looking through. But he sees the trickle-down effect and the impact on individuals. The way it causes people to suffer. And that drives him to confront God. And I think that can be a helpful model for us. That we see something national, international happening and it drives us to pray. It drives us to express our emotions to God. All of this can also be true and work for and is valid in when we consider our own circumstances and there's real pain there that we then need to express to God. And that's where the individual laments in the Psalms come in. It's the individual psalmist expressing their own personal situation felt by that person in those circumstances at that moment in time. And that's valid. So I think we've got some stuff to learn about lamenting. We're going to have a go at it later. So I'll just give you a heads up. But let's look at what he actually says to God. He asks two questions and he makes three accusations. So the two questions are these. How long, O Lord? And why? Start verse 2, start at verse 3. And I think these are the two basic questions of suffering. How long, O oh Lord, and why? And in the middle of our confusion and pain, they're probably the two most natural questions to ask. And I love how Habakkuk directs them to God. Now, As many of you know, last July... My dad was diagnosed with motor neurone disease. He'd just turned 64 and he was looking forward to retiring this coming June. After 40 years serving as a faithfully as a Methodist and Baptist minister. When he was diagnosed in July, he was given two to three years to live with this disease. That was the projected life expectancy. And really it came with kind of an expectation that it would be a a gradual physical decline, probably, no one knew for sure, but probably involving being wheelchair-bound, not being able to communicate um, and use his mouth and so on. It's kind of a disease that kind of the muscles waste away, essentially. And as many of you know, and I'm sure if you don't know, you can imagine... It was a shock to the whole of our family. And I found myself praying for healing. As you do, because God heals, correct? Yeah, he does. Amen is the answer to that. But mixed into that were these prayers of why and how long, O Lord. Because I couldn't just pray for healing. The pain was there of the why and the how long, O Lord. And I got an answer to one of those questions. So in January, in fact, it's three months ago today, my dad died. Very suddenly, not the two to three year trajectory we were expecting. It answered the how long, O Lord, question. Not long is the answer. Not long enough, weirdly, because he was suffering but the why question remains and is still raw he served you faithfully why does it have to end like this 40 years and you couldn't even give him a couple of years of retirement did he not have any more to contribute surely he did Don't we need people who've walked with the Lord for years and years and years? Who can show us young ones the way? 50 years. So good. 50 years of marriage. What an example for us from Peter and Jill. Let's learn from them. How can it be, though, that this man who spent his life speaking truth into others' lives and walking with them through their crises doesn't get to speak anymore. Can now hardly hold a conversation. At the end, he was writing on a notepad. But I think these two questions, how long, O Lord, and why, help us unlock how to lament well. Because there's these two basic questions. One commentator describes the questions as this He says, How long, O Lord, really means, I have my limits. And he says, The why question means, I need reasons. I don't understand. And in the middle of our pain, we ask these questions because we want certainty. We want certainty that it will end. How long, O Lord? And we want to know that there's purpose in it. We want to understand why it is that this has been served up for us when it doesn't seem fair, doesn't seem right. It's a way of articulating our confusion. (coughs) But my conclusion in my limited experience of suffering is that we probably do get the answer to the how long question. And maybe this side of eternity, we don't always see the answer to the why question. Two questions. I think they're going to help us. How long, O oh Lord, and why? But Habakkuk doesn't just ask questions He accuses God of a number of things as well. Three accusations. Here they are. God doesn't hear. God doesn't save. God doesn't care. I mean, they are weighty accusations to throw around in front of almighty God. But that's what he says. So in verse 2a, he says, How long, O Lord, will I call for help and you will not hear? If God isn't listening... What's the point of Habakkuk talking to him? That's my question. If he's a God who doesn't hear, why bother? Just put on the telly. (laughs) Thanks. Pick up the scroll then. (laughs) Habakkuk is speaking out, crying out that God will hear. He's trying to stir God to action, to kind of goad him into action, knowing that really, God does hear. The second accusation, God doesn't say. verse 2, part B, says, I cry out to you violence, yet you do not save. This is about the seeming inaction of God, the idea that God's just sat on his heavenly sofa, reading the paper. It seems to Habakkuk that so much is wrong that he can see and he hasn't got almighty eyesight like God does and God is just standing idly by letting things unfold doing nothing about it but again this cry yet you do not save doesn't make any sense unless Habakkuk is utterly convinced that God does act and will act again The underlying idea of all of this is that if God's people call on him, he will listen and he will act. And many of the great stories of redemption down through Israelite history, the exodus from Egypt, the conquering of the promised land and kicking out all the nations who didn't worship God. They involve God's people calling out for rescue and God listening and acting and saving. 2 Chronicles 7:14. And my people, who are called by my name, if they humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will ignore them and let them go on and on and on in their sin. No. Good. Well done. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sin and will heal their land. He is a God who hears. He is a God who acts. He is a God who saves. Habakkuk's third accusation is that God doesn't care. <laughs> we know this is rubbish because we just sang some stuff earlier. Yeah? But Habakkuk didn't have that song. So um, he says specifically that God doesn't care about sin and injustice. I wonder how many of you have heard this kind of thing from your friends or colleagues. Why does God allow suffering? Yeah? Why do innocent babies die? Why do the poor suffer? Why do the rich get richer? Well, how do the powerful get away with exploiting the weak? Just this week, a colleague of mine, we had an email conversation, um, told me how her sister has just had a mastectomy due to breast cancer two weeks until she finds out whether she needs chemotherapy. (coughs) So she had the op this week. And on Thursday, Wednesday, her youngest child had her eighth birthday. Why? Why? Why is that okay to be going on in the world? Just doesn't seem fair that people suffer. We're quite good at spotting injustice. So uh, there's a picture coming up here, and you'll recognize that from June last year. Part of the reason why the Grenfell Tower tragedy, where 71 people died, was so shocking was because as the story unfolded, it seemed that a great injustice had been done. Not just, I use that word carefully, not just that 71 people died. Not just that over 100 families lost their homes and possessions and everything. That would have been bad enough in and of itself. But the fact that part of what seemed to be behind the cause was that companies appeared to have used cheaper cladding, presumably to maximise profits, which in turn endangered people's lives. And when the residents complained about the fire situation, they were ignored because they could be ignored. And so nearly a year on, we're still waiting for those people to be rehoused. We're still waiting for justice to be done, This justice for Grenfell. We're quite good at spotting where there's injustice. And then there's a call put out for justice. But this is the world we live in. And it doesn't seem fair. How can this happen? And yet God, who cares about justice, doesn't he? Can allow that to happen. And this... Grenfell, particularly, I think, jars with us in our national consciousness, really, because the people who should have been protected were overlooked. But for Habakkuk to stand there and accuse God of not caring about sin and injustice is like saying that Pythagoras wasn't bothered about triangles or Shakespeare didn't really care about words. You just can't say that kind of stuff. Because actually, underneath it all, God is righteous and just. He is supremely concerned about the issues of sin and injustice. And next week we'll see that he responds in quite remarkable fashion to these accusations that Habakkuk is levelling at him. But again, as with the other two accusations, this only makes sense if you think that God is not doing what he could be doing. And so I just want to conclude, really, by issuing us with a challenge. The challenge is, are we a people who are Prepared and can lament well. Verse 1 describes Habakkuk as having an oracle or a burden. Something which he feels. Something which he carries. Habakkuk isn't providing us here with a detached critique of the state of the nation of Judah around 600 BC. Interesting though that would be. Instead, he's articulating a passionate, emotion-filled cry for God's intervention in society because of what he sees around him. And I know that some of you carry around this interaction with suffering on a daily basis, maybe because of the work you're involved in. Maybe you're involved in crisis management or counselling or safeguarding, those sorts of things where there's difficult situations and you carry the weight, you see injustice, you see the effects of, of destruction and violence and strife and contention on a daily basis. And it can get tough and it can wear you down. And maybe it's time to articulate it afresh with God again. For those of you who don't, engage with that in a kind of professional sense or in a daily sense maybe it's just that you've become desensitized our news coverage is so extensive and comprehensive every day there's pain and suffering on our tv screens on our twitter and facebook feeds and so on let me ask you when was the last time you prayed about the rohingya people who are in the process over the last 18 months of being ethnically cleansed out of northern Myanmar. A Muslim minority being overwhelmed within a Buddhist-majority country. Their children being trafficked as sex slaves. Villages burned, people slaughtered, and fleeing in their tens of thousands over the border into Bangladesh, one of the poorest countries On the face of the planet. When was the last time you cried to God. About the injustice of that. I'm speaking to myself here as well. Or when was the last time you prayed. For our storehouse. Our children's storehouse. That provides clothing. To those most disadvantaged families. But instead of. Praying for. Extra pants. Or toiletries important though those are, that you actually prayed about the reason for why that storehouse exists. It's because there are families in our town who cannot afford to buy clothes for their children. That is not right. God, how long, O oh Lord? What's been your reaction this month to the Syria situation? To the fact that there are children Covered in this chemical weapon. And what are you thinking and praying now as we launch missiles in return? One of our ministers said this morning on the news that we had a a moral, that this was justified morally to bomb Syria. It's an interesting phrase, I thought. And so there's a challenge to us to lament. A challenge to us to take these situations to God. That's what we're going to do now. And it may be that one of those things I've said there has struck you and you think, I want to call out to God about that. Or you'll be able to. It could be that actually there's something very personal going on. You're in the midst of suffering. You're in the midst of pain. These questions are swirling around. Why don't you follow Habakkuk's example and articulate that to God? Bring it before him and ask him these questions.